0: Can you recall the last movie you watched that kept you awake at night, or, for bonus points, gave you a legitimate nightmare?
1: Honestly, the, the two recent examples I can think of of uh, horror movies that have really kept me up, like through that night, are *The Witch* and *Hereditary*. Unfortunately, it's a very lame answer, but I don't know. *The Witch*. I, I was staying with a friend from college who lived kind of like out in the woods in the middle of nowhere, and I remember being like genuinely frightened about being like surrounded by woods. And then after Hereditary, I had, like, terrible sleep paralysis. Like, one of the few times that I remember, like, actually, like, seeing, like, a figure. And, I don't know, there's a lot of, like, you know, kind of, like, looming in the distance in that movie. And uh, it, it got me thinking of that. So, yeah, A24, the, their style of horror has worked for me at least twice.
2: <laughs> I don't remember as an adult, not to be like, no, I'm a big man or anything, but I don't <laughs> I don't feel like as an adult. I think I'm just so... Uh... I think the way I watch movies is detached and skeptical and I just I they don't hit as hard as they did when I was a kid but when I was a child I couldn't watch anything even vaguely frightening um without having nightmares and the the thing that sticks with me I like couldn't watch horror movies so I didn't uh until I was late into my 20s but I, it, the thing that used to get me most often was the theme song to Unsolved Mysteries. My parents would watch it, and I would hear it from the other room, and it would bug me out for hours, hours at a time.
0: Well, we're going to be talking about some more nightmares today, because we are back for another episode of Split Picks for our special October horror series. We're talking about some of the great American horror directors. My name is Craig. I'm the host of Split Picks. And today, we are discussing the career of Wes Craven. Being joined once again by Jim Hickox. Howdy. Jim, how you doing today?
2: Good, how are you doing? I'm doing
0: fine. It's Friday, it's...
2: Yeah. Yeah. The weather's cooling off, that's exciting for me here in Texas.
0: See, we were starting to cool off in Portland, but then today it's 88 degrees, and like we had sweatshirts on this morning, it's like, wait, no, no, we're done with this, so...
2: (laughs) Growing up in the Northeast, it was like we always had to plan our trick-or-treating outfits over snow pants, you know? And down here, it's like, <laughs> on the 31st, it'll be probably in the 70s. Yeah, different so worlds. I'm waiting for that, for it to be not just unbearably sweaty.
0: And joining us from Philadelphia, Bennett, you're back once again. How are you doing?
2: Um,
1: not too bad. How's it going, everybody? I uh, I don't have bugs in my apartment this time around, but I have some weird leak by uh, the baseboard on the one wall in my bedroom. Uh, it's like just damp and like slimy. It's
2: a deadly board. mold probably. Uh-oh. Probably,
1: yeah. So uh another thing that I thought I was done with, uh, you know, my last apartment had some black mold. Hopefully uh this one, I don't know, has a less serious type of mold. But uh happy to be here, happy to be back on split picks.
2: It, it's it's from that Toby Hooper movie. <laughs> mortuary Yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's coming for you. Well we
1: all gotta go someday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if you're new to this series we have previously covered Toby Hooper with Bennett and Jim. That episode was an absolute blast. We looked at spontaneous combustion and life force. After that, we looked at John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness and yeah. John Carpenter's Vampires. And oh. that was with. Ooh,
2: good choices. Yeah. Seth, those are both bangers. <laughs> they're,
0: they're good ones. And that was with Steve Collins and John Merriman. It's a blast. Check that episode out. Right on.
2: Austin Guys. Yeah. Austin Guys.
0: And next week, we'll be finishing up the series with George A. Romero. That'll be another great one. But today, we are here for Wes Craven. And. He is a guy who is credited with essentially changing the face of horror three times. Um, we're going to get through all that. But we have a matchup today that I honestly never would have predicted. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, you selected what is probably his most overtly religious film, probably outside of Serbs yeah, and the Rainbow. That's true. Um, can you? What can you tell us about the movie you selected?
2: Uh, I have selected Deadly Blessing. I feel like it is a... It feels like a crucial pivot point for me. I think there there are I as you sort of said he he's credited with reinventing the genre or like contributing largely to the genre at three different points, which means there are two sort of major pivot points and I think this is one of them. I came into I came into this West Craven experiment having just seen the big bangers, right? And now I've watched a bunch of stuff and coming into it I was like, "Oh, really the stuff that West Craven does that sings is his like really tight uh stuff but it turns out nothing he ever made was really tight and something about this movie it's it's also completely all over the place in the same way that i would now say almost all to all of his movies are uh, and maybe except the screams um but something about this one in particular makes it hang together for me in a way that a lot of them don't necessarily
1: yeah no i'll be honest i uh when i watched it Um, like a month ago, it was one of the few Cravens that really didn't do anything for me. And then watching it again last night, I was like, oh, wow, this is uh, it's really something special. Although it's stylistically, it's the most like a carpenter film of any of his films. But I found myself wishing that either Toby Hooper or George Romero had directed it. It's so much more like in their wheelhouse, I feel like. And maybe it's just the Pennsylvania connection for Romero. But um, good as it is, and I like quite a lot about it. It's one of the Craven movies that I kind of wish someone else had, had taken a stab at.
2: I, I don't want to go too far down this road necessarily, but I did. I found myself almost all the ones I was excited about wishing Toby Hooper had made them instead.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, I was in a similar boat as you where I'd seen, you know, Scream and a few others, but not many Cravens. Um, he, he has a really interesting career, so I'm excited to talk about him <laughs> today. Um, I mean, I know there's so many instances of studio interference where they would, like, change the endings entirely and just make him change things and... So we, I really don't know how good of a director he actually is because I don't know how much of his original stuff we've actually seen. Right. But Bennett, you picked one from 1989. What did you pick and why?
1: I picked Shocker. And I picked it because I think it is Wes Craven's best film. I think it, uh, it combines the stuff he's doing in the better earlier films, or his best earlier films, um, The Serpent and the Rainbow, A Nightmare on Elm Street, this sort of uh, dream logic, dream world stuff with the exploration of uh, media and its impact on society that he would get into in the Scream movies. And um, I, I just it blew me away the first time I watched it. It is such a wild, inventive, surprising film. And it just makes you pump your fists. I don't know. It's, I knew uh, it's that was going to come up. <laughs> <laughs> it's full of great metal music. And there are sequences that I just found myself like... I, I've never been a guy who listens to metal, but I've listened to the soundtrack for this... Embarrassingly, a lot. the uh, The Megadeth cover of uh, "No More Mr. Nice Guy" is probably like going to be my most played song for 2021 on Spotify this year.
0: <laughs> so, Bennett, why don't we go to the beginning with Wes Craven? Because I know you've looked into his career a bit more than me. Can you give us a little background into who Wes Craven is and how he made his way into the film world?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, if you read like an interview with Wes Craven or a profile or um, you know, like an obituary, they'll usually mention a couple of things about. Um, how he got his start in film. They'll mention that he had a fundamentalist religious upbringing, um, which was such that much like Paul Schrader, he didn't see a film. (laughs) They don't really have much else in common, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Um, They're they're both kind of, they're both a little pretentious too, I guess. But uh, much like Paul Schrader, he he didn't see a film um, until he was college aged and even then did so at his own peril. And he was a college professor before and like a high school teacher before becoming a filmmaker he has what did he teach uh, uh english and he has a master's in english and a master's in philosophy um so he got his start in mm-hmm. filmmaking relatively late and um i don't know i we were talking a little bit about this off mic i, I he doesn't draw a lot of obvious influences from cinema which i think yeah. really differentiates him from the other kind of masters of horror i think carpenter in particular. You know, everybody loves to write about the comparison between Carpenter and Hawks, and like it's not, it's not evident that Craven has ever seen the Howard Hawks movie. You know, Uh, Last House on the Left is you know sort of uh, a remake of Ingmar Bergman's film The Virgin Spring, but that's one of the only films you ever hear Wes Craven talk about or that anyone ever brings up in discussing his films. And it's also
2: like at that point was he like I love this movie or was he like I want to make a movie? What's a movie that's kind of uh, generally considered great that I can just lift from? Right? It's like. uh it seems like a practical decision more than an artistic influence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's like from what i've gathered his start in in filmmaking was basically that like students of his were interested in making films and he sort yeah. of like started working with them. And then uh, at one point his his sort of like uh like department head basically came to him as like what the hell, you know, you're you're like fucking around with a movie camera, you're supposed to be publishing, you're supposed to be working on your phd, so either you know, get on track or quit and he apparently quit and moved out and started making films. Um yeah, his career is is really interesting compared to the other kind of horror masters because they all have kind of moments where they, you know, fall out of favor of, you know, the money guys or audiences. And Craven kind of, you know, like we said, reinvents the genre in separate decades a couple of times. And his high points are followed by conspicuous low points, conspicuous moments of obscurity. Much like what we saw with Hooper, he is incapable of directing an uninteresting movie. Yeah. Um, everything is sort of full of wild flourishes and, you know, interesting touches. And I know for me, I think he's most interesting when he's working in, in dream worlds.
0: So he made some TV movies as well. So we're going to focus just on the, you know, theatrical movie releases. So out of the gates, he made last house on the left. Yeah. That's the first one that people credit him with kind of reshaping horror because it went places that no one had really gone before.
1: It's it's a better movie than I remembered. Um, yeah. It's I, I think today it gets tagged for being a little like tonally inconsistent and a little amateurish, but um, but so is I, everything I he it... made.
2: Yeah, it, exactly. Like, he those, are, really those are those are his hallmarks as a director. But... Those
1: aren't bugs. Yeah, yeah. those are features. Yeah. Um, it's it's a pretty interesting movie. I think people made a lot of hay out of it being influenced by like, Vietnam at the time. You know, it, it being about like this this. Violent impulse, kind of resting in, in in polite society.
2: I mean, it is. I mean, it is ultimately very, very based on Virgin Spring. I think I was I was trying to think about if it is sort of because people talk about it as sort of this important bridge between art film and exploitation, right? Or or like the thing that brings the rape revenge into exploitation, which is a we we see that movie. There's probably four playing at Fantastic Fest right now, right? Um, there's it's just it was like it's it's a perennial favorite, the rape revenge. I mean, I think it is, it is one of the earlier exploitation versions of that. I, I think it's, I think it is important. And I think it is, I, I also agree that it's better than I remembered it being, but I also remembered it being pretty boring. And I, you know, I think it's fine. I think it's a fine movie.
1: It's fun when the, the, the parents do all the Home Alone ass traps at the end. Like, I don't know, when, when he like, contrives to have the guy that get like electrocuted by trying to open the door oh. and the shaving cream in the ground and stuff. Uh, <laughs> despite the, yeah. despite the, uh, I don't know, despite the subject matter, uh, you know, Craven could still have a little bit of fun. Uh, yeah, with uh, with the third act, I uh, not to be like the IMDb trivia section, but another interesting tidbit I learned about Wes Craven uh, is he had never seen a horror movie and, uh, until making last uh, Last House on the Left. I and believe he saw, that. <laughs> Yeah, he saw um, Night of the Living Dead uh, during the production. It was the only uh, Was the only horror movie he had seen. So that's funny. Yeah you know, these 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 four uh, these four masters of horror that we're covering here in October they'll yeah will they
2: uh, yeah, they touch they, each they,
1: other. They, they touch each other. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So then after that, he made The Hills Have Eyes, which, you know, it's regarded now as a classic, but at the time, it was kind of just like a, you know, a good movie, I think.
1: It's, it's in very, like, similar thematic territory. Um, it's yeah. like, you know, uh, polite, educated, you know, urbane liberals getting pushed to, you know, violent ends.
2: And I think it's intentionally, right? I think somebody was like, I'll give you money to make that movie again. And he, and he
1: basically, like, the conceit was that, yeah, he would make basically the same movie in a new setting.
2: Yeah. It feels to me like a like a lesser t- chainsaw t- <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, it's this was one of the ones that I remembered being pretty tight. Because it's it's a really it's a very small conceit. I mean, it's basically the same conceit as the Last House on the Left. But I remembered it being pretty tight and then I watched it and I was like, "Oh no, it's not. This movie is a jumbling shambling mess of things. Just things happen all over the place. And some of them are really fun, and a lot of them I was like, "Oh, okay.
0: So, the thing to me that stands out about his first two films is that they do deal with people's terrible impulses and people's breaking sure. points, and like what happens when we go too far or are pushed beyond our limits. And that brings us to Deadly Blessing because, you know, he was raised in this super strict Baptist society. And then he comes on as a director for hire, basically, for Deadly Blessing. So, Jim, do you want to give us just a little intro to the movie and what it's all about
2: here's here's what i think makes it so delightful for me is that it's about eight things it's about that's too many uh, i can't fill that number but it's about um it's about a woman who has married uh a guy they introduced this group of of like Uh, not quite Amish people that they called the Hittites. And I was like, that's real people. What if they see it? But then I looked it up later and the Hittites died out in 1200 BC or something. So they're not going to see it. Um, Even if they were alive, they wouldn't because they don't go to the movies, but it's, he has like this, this, you know, anti-electricity sort of pseudo Amish clam called the Hittites. uh, What's the line? They say the Hittites make the Amish look like swingers. The Amish
1: look like swingers. Swingers. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, who are led by Ernest Borgnine, who's, like, channeling Devil's Reign the whole time, which is, for me, uh, I think the number two Satan in movies, Devil's Borgnine in um, in Devil's Reign. After, of course, uh, Prince of Darkness by John Carpenter, the Tube of Goo, uh, is my number one Satan. <laughs> that is a great uh, devil. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so it's Ernest Borgnine is, is the father, uh, I- Isaiah, of this clan of people who, uh, one of them... Was allowed to go off to college and he met a girl and it was has somehow obtained a farm that I think used to be part of the Hittite farm, um, even though he has been disowned by the Hittites. And he and his he and his wife live there now uh, and are sort of cast out and reviled by the Hittites, uh, including Michael Berryman who is, is sort of an early, ooh, this is probably the bad guy, I think, b- because we're coming off of The Hills Have Eyes, right? Um, West Craven. Charmingly, which I think this is another sort of uh, f- precursor to his meta-textual filmmaking later on is that he's like, I'm taking the bad guy from my last movie and putting him in this movie and you're going to think he's the bad guy, but then he's not, right? Which is uh, not clever. And then, so yeah, so it's about them and then the, the guy dies uh, and there's creepy neighbors and... Uh, one of whom makes twisted paintings and there's a bunch of these Hittite kids creeping around and then the ex-wifes this is getting messy I'm sorry the ex it's Wes Graven's fault not mine and then the ex this the the widowers friends show up uh and simultaneously we have maybe people are getting murdered uh well people are the, the, the Michael Berryman gets murdered uh the the husband is murdered um and and we don't know who's doing it. Um, it could be one of the Hittites. The, the, the neighbors are weird and seem, like, weirdly sexually attracted to everybody. Um, and uh, Sharon Stone, who's one of the friends, is having insane hallucinations sort of totally separately. Uh, and also the murderer is just showing up and doing pranks for some reason. Uh, and... and Uh, the Hittites are convinced that, um, that someone is the pre is like the, the spawn of the devil or like a precursor to the devil or talking to the devil who they're calling an incubus. Yeah. Is that the whole plot? That's the whole two thirds. That was only 14 plot points, Jim. (laughs) I did enough. Oh, and then also the other friend is maybe seducing one of the Hittite men, right? This is important. Whose uh, cousin fiance starts running around near the end, and is also we think maybe doing murders, or maybe just crazy, or maybe just scorned by her husband. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, and the guy that she starts like dating is her bro- is like the brother of the guy who was killed by the tractor right. early on. In the I month,
2: thought yeah, they so. might have just been using the word brother because everyone called Isaiah father. But they also, it might have been his literal brother. I'm unclear I guess, that. yeah, I guess I don't know. Um, <laughs> what Like, I, I mentioned that I thought
1: maybe I would like this movie better if George Romero directed it, because uh, the, the uh, Amish-esque setting sure. suggests it's maybe Pennsylvania. I also think Lincoln Mazel from Martin and the Amusement Park would have made a meal uh.
0: of
1: uh, not Ernest Borgnine, the other sort of elder. The guy from The Hills Have Eyes' father. He would have made a meal
2: of that. That dude shows up, he's Michael Berryman's father. Uh who calls who calls Ernest Borgnine brother, who maybe they're literal brothers, it's hard to tell. Uh probably, right? They're probably all supposed to be inbred. And yeah, he he is there and he does fine, but he definitely someone who knew how to chew stuff up would have been really delightful in that space.
1: Ernest Borgnine got a Razzie nomination, which just shows that they've Did never he? known what they were talking about. Yet. That's he's so great. stupid. Incredible. Great. He should have been in a Toby Hooper movie.
2: He's, he's not even Borgnine. at full <laughs> Borgnine in this movie. He's at like 80% Borgnine, and he's still like chomping at it. He's giving an appropriate an appropriate performance, I think.
0: So that is one thing I wanted to ask about, because pretty much everything I've read about this movie, every writer takes a shot at the actress, whether it's Sharon Stone, because this was like her first feature role. Sure. And apparently she was asking Wes Craven, like, hey, I've never really acted before. Can you give me some tips? And he'd just be like, just read
2: your part. <laughs> well, here's here's something that I, I don't know if this is a controversial opinion or not, because I've read nothing. Oh. Uh, but I, I would posit... That across all these movies I watched, I was never like, oh, Wes Craven's a good director. If you're watching somebody's movies and no actor ever gives a better performance than they would in a room alone, then that means they're not a good director. And I don't think he, in any of the movies I watched, gets anything out of anybody that they didn't bring themselves. I think that he's a creative writer, and I think that he pulls together a lot of fun projects But I don't think he, I don't think as a director, he's ever really bringing much to the table.
1: I I think he got to be a pretty good director. Granted, he's leaning heavily on, like, his special effects artists and his production designers there. Yeah. But I think he gets to be a pretty good or at least a pretty interesting director in, like, the dream movies, like Nightmare, Serpent, Shocker, when he's sort of playing around with like dream sequences and really like
2: I think he makes lovely sequences I'm talking about acting direct directing actors (laughs) he's a bad director of actors. the baseline level of, (laughs) of directing I think he's not great at I think he's really good at pulling things together and I do think you mentioned this earlier I think that he's very good with like effects and with pulling um and like bringing a team together to make a spectacle right he he like kills it at that and and conceiving of, like, beautiful moments and bringing them together. I think he does a lot of things very well. But I think directing actors is not one of them.
1: Yeah, and I think Music of the Heart is what, like, confirmed that for me. Like, I'm not I, – I, yeah. I think Meryl Streep is generally kind of, like – not to quote uh, Donald Trump, but I, th- I do think she's kind of overrated. <laughs> um, but she's really bad in Music from the Heart, as is, like, everybody. And I don't know, watching him, like, you know, working with, like, what the studio figured was like an easy layup of a script yeah. and like a cast of like the, the you know, quote unquote best actors he would ever work with and just uh-huh. kind of whiff like he never whiffed <laughs> before. Yeah, I, I agree. He's not a very good director of actors.
2: Which but I don't think that's necessarily how we should be judging him. Right. It's not. That's almost none of his movies, except potentially music from the heart, are based around having great performance. Right. They're about he like had some wild ideas and wants to put them on a screen. And I respect that a lot. Uh, if people are all taking swings at these actors, I think they're, I mean, those performances aren't the best of any of those people's careers, right? All of them do better under better better circumstances. But I think, you know, they're all doing the best they can with the support they probably had.
1: The way he directs actors can sometimes work in his favor, and his choice of sure. actors can sometimes work in his favor. Like, I think Nightmare on like Street... Well, yeah, Lillard is a good example, but I think Nightmare on Elm Street works well because, like, so many of the characters are pretty, like, ordinary and they act like regular people. Sure. Um, Not to, like, sound like I'm quoting myself when I'm talking about, like, Clint Eastwood working with (laughs) non-professionals or, you know, inexperienced actors, but I I think there's some of the same thing. Just say Brisson
2: instead of Eastwood and then you...
1: (laughs) Yeah, it feels very, like, unmannered and um, authentic occasionally. Like, I think Heather Lankenkamp is, like, the perfect level of actor to work with with Wes Craven. I think she really, like she doesn't seem like an actor acting like she's in some sort of like nightmare scenario. She seems like a person experiencing this like nightmare scenario. And like if Wes Craven was a more like quote unquote expert director with actors, he might've like coached her into some sort of really like over the top performance.
2: If he was Toby Hooper, he would have. uh, I think that, I think that you're right in in a lot of the dream films. And I would, I think also in, uh, in Deadly Blessing to a degree, part of what makes them work is that he has these people who are giving sort of I don't want to say wouldn't, but sort of unaffected performances playing against people who are completely unhinged, right? Because all those people who are doing it in the Nightmare movies, right, who are who are like there and are like, they're, they are just reading the lines, right? Like you said, Craig, um, they're all going up against Robert England, who is an absolute madman right and he's like he's like i get this character i am a weasel here I, here i go uh and if 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 the person they had cast wasn't completely off the chain if they didn't have a brad Dourif type to play uh freddy krueger then then i don't think the movie would hang together uh, you know what i mean if he was also kind of just there but having that that big of a of a energy difference i think it's that's how a battery works right you have to have your node and your a node
0: so jim in the toby hooper episode you said hooper's not necessarily a great writer but i think the direct quote was he will direct the shit out of whatever script he's given (laughs) sure craven kind of seems to me to be the flip side of that where he's a fairly decent writer but i do want to bring up studio interference here because sure sure like i said we don't know what this movie would have looked like if someone else directed it. It sounds like he rewrote a ton of this. I mean, how do you feel this movie stands in comparison to his other work? Like what's the quality level here?
2: I, unlike Bennett did very terrible research. I based my, uh, my, I like looked at on his Wikipedia page. I still have it open. Actually. Uh, there's a list of like, was he a writer on this movie? And I was like, Oh yeah, he wrote, he basically wrote everything up until new nightmare almost everything. And then he basically stopped writing his movies, which I think is interesting. But I didn't, what I didn't realize is that he, I, I read this shortly before we started recording that he apparently was given a script on this movie and then, uh, and then, and then did a big rewrite on it. Right. I am curious what this movie would have been like, because I, that I, I read that the dudes who originally wrote it were like, Oh, all the like jump scares and everything in this movie are basically Wes Craven. And he like brought in, um, these like big, uh, these big moments, which makes sense because that, that is, as I just said, I think is sort of where he's the strongest is like the thing where like a body falls down in the barn and then, uh, and then there's nobody there and the door swings closed or whatever.
1: Yeah, It's interesting. You talked about this being sort of a pivot movie and it, it starts to become sort of, it's like half a dream movie, the way yeah. that Nightmare on Elm Street and, and Serpent and Shocker would be. And there's obviously like a very deliberate, there's a shot that's lifted, almost wholesale for Nightmare, the shot in the yeah. bathtub. There's also, when, when Sharon Stone is running around in the barn and there's like a little hole she's trying to escape through, it's very reminiscent of Rose McGowan and Scream. So I think yeah. we can see some of like what would become persistent ideas for him starting to, to percolate in this movie. But yeah, maybe it's studio interference, maybe that it was someone else's script originally. He's only like part of the way there. And like, as we've talked about, even at his best, he probably only gets like 90% of the way there. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Not not to keep shitting on Wes Craven. Like I would rank him fourth among I, the, the horror guys. But I do yeah. like all of his films, besides. Yeah, exactly. I
2: enjoyed uh, everything I watched in preparation for this. We should yeah. we should put that caveat on yeah, except for Hills 2. Um any of these is worth taking a swing at. Um they're all good. I just I just don't have the like un, I don't have a burning passion for him that uh that I do for some of the others. But I do actually have I think more respect for him after rewatching a bunch of these movies than I thought I did. Um I because they do, they get a lot. I think of him as a pretty dry d- director, a d- pretty dry creator, creator, who in my brain, previous to this, I was like, ah, he's like not super crazy. And then he like came up with a nightmare where the conceit is like, ooh, everything's dreams and that let him get wild. But that's not true. All of his movies are full of kind of nutso ideas, right? <laughs> um, and I think that's what, I th- when I started watching this one, Deadly Blessing, I, I was like, oh, this is, he's taking, um the idea of like a folklore movie right of like blood on satan's claw or uh the the wicker man right he, yeah he's taking like the idea of the folklore and Midsommar! and <laughs> yeah and setting it in the 1970s um which i think is delightful that's not a thing we see often and and it does sort of start that way and it sort of feels that way for a while and then it gets way way weirder than that but it's 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 that sort of combined with i feel like sharon stone is sort of in her own movie but what i what i haven't said is how the movie ends which is it it ultimately ties all the things together in sort of just a real one two punch of an ending where it's it's been you've had um it's really a one two three punch there's one punch in this movie that i'm not stoked about um it's uh so we've had it's like the mother-daughter team who live next door, who the daughter paints crazy paintings, which are unbefitting a young woman. And there's the Hittites who are maybe doing murders. And there's Sharon Stone who is having these insane hallucinations. Um, and there's the the husband who's dead, uh, and there's the woman who's who's still living in this house, and they they think she's an incubus, uh, a, a traditionally male demon. And so then Oh, and there's the and there's the cousin fiance. Sorry, I keep forgetting the cousin fiance. <laughs> do you think
1: they confuse the terms incubus and succubus in this? The, the, I don't. The being they're describing seems to be like a succubus of some sort. They like they they they, they characterize the incubus as this like uh, uh like parasitic female spirit. Which, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know much about I don't know, demonology, but that's not that's not the incubus's deal, right? Do,
2: do they specifically say it's female?
1: I think so. Oh, Are okay. they're always accusing like women of being the
0: yeah, but they mostly say like it's the, what is it, the messengers of the succubus? Or inc- yes, the incubus, messengers.
2: Sorry. Right, right. I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna ruin anything for y'all. But it turns out that the daughter of the woman down the lane is, uh, is intersexed. She is, she has both male and female genitalia, uh, and I think that that is, I think that's why they're using incubus in this one. Um, I think it is intentional because she is female presenting. Uh, but is in some way they, they like rip her shirt open, and she has a very male chest, uh, and and they're like, ha ah. you No, know, I
1: forgot about that. Maybe it's because I wanted to yeah. forget about that.
2: Because it's 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 really the worst. I mean, it's it's you know the movies f- from. the late 70s yeah in the early 80s uh when you know it's 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 almost the same twist not to ruin it as sleepaway camp right? right except they don't put a point on it it's just kind of a thing that happens right uh and i didn't feel great about it it's sort of the worst thing it's it's it has aged the worst out of anything in this movie i think and it's it's the most it kind of happens and you're like oh that doesn't have to be there
1: from a like a thoughtful like really obviously like intellectual director it's sort of yeah. a humor too yeah but it's yeah.
2: weird and it's i was trying to figure out i because he is a literate thoughtful man you know i was trying to i was like maybe it's you know baphomet is traditionally depicted with with boobs and a penis. So maybe he was trying to do like an inversion of that. But I don't know. I, I think I'm just being generous. I think it's just, it must've been from the original script. I don't know. Anyway, that, that happens. But then that's sort of revealed as the secret that this, this woman and her, and her intersex daughter have been hiding. uh, And they're the murderers. They've been doing murders. Uh, And, and so that's revealed. And then everyone gets murdered. um, And then the man, the, the, the ex-Hittite, whose wife we've been following for the whole movie, his ghost just appears right at the end. Uh, and you're like, oh, there are ghosts now. Um, and he's like, look out for the incubus, and then the devil swallows the house whole, uh, basically, <laughs> from the inside. It's uh, yeah.
1: it's kind of like the ending of Spontaneous Combustion. Like, yeah. someone gets sucked into a portal, and it just kind of ends. Like, yeah. you feel like there's, there's something missing.
2: And you're like, up until then, it has been four sort of disingenuous storylines that all... Coincide and for me, hang together enough. I was delighted that it was like several different people doing different things, uh, and that they were all just kind of there, and and they all happened to like center around this house. And then at the end, they're like, uh, "It's out around this house because it's the devil." And you're like, "Oh, okay, I guess it's the it's the devil is underneath this house." Okay, uh, which is fine, but it also wasn't necessary.
1: <laughs> I definitely don't mind that it doesn't really cohere yeah, um, yeah, people like overuse comparing things to giallo or gialli excuse me let's use the plural here <laughs> but the fact that there's like a black loved killer and like yeah. a lot of nudity and like it, it just it feels like a Giallo movie you know it people does. are using that to defend slop like malignant now but uh <laughs> You know, I, I I feel like it's a little it's not maybe not quite apt, but like somewhere near apt to compare sure. deadly blessing to a giallo.
2: I mean, it is until the devil shows up at the end. It is fundamentally a, a giallo, right? It's it's just people doing murders. There's no there's nothing actually supernatural until there is two minutes from the end of the film.
1: Yeah, and even if it doesn't, like, fully commit to focusing on the killings, it's at least in part, like, a giallo or a slasher, with this other kind of folk horror stuff happening alongside it.
2: Yeah, which I think is delightful. I enjoy all of those things. (laughs) So, most people
0: that I've read online said that the studio tacked on the final ending, but I found another article from Manor Vellum, which this is just an amazing piece about religion in Wes Craven's work. I trust this writer more than the rest of the internet. Um, but he, sure. he found a quote that Craven was saying he himself changed the ending. So I don't know what to make of it, it. It seems to make more sense when it's like, well, yeah, the studio threw this thing in that like kind of upends the entirety of the rest of the movie. But hearing that Craven did it himself, I, what is that? What's your takeaway on that?
2: I mean, that could be a situation where the studio is like, you need to have an ending that makes it all hang together, figure one out, right? And then he's inventing what that means for him. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing with Wes Craven is that I think that his, I think that his moments are stronger than his films. And I think that, I think that this film, as, as I said earlier, it's the, the sort of disparate elements for me gelled into a continuum better than a lot of the movies did, which I think is what I was reacting to when I, when I picked this one. And I think it has a lot of good moments. I don't think it has the best moments. I think, Bennett, your movie has, I think, the best moment in Wes Craven's whole career. Um, and I I think that a few of his other movies have really strong moments. But I think this movie has really good moments. But it also, there weren't points in this movie where I was like, let's get back to some moments. Uh, the whole time I was pretty much having a good time. Uh, so the idea that that ending would have been tacked on by a studio or requested by a studio makes a lot of sense. Because it's a real tonal, like, hard left but I also don't, I think, super care. Uh, I en- I enjoy it. Uh, I-, I think if the movie ended without that moment, I would be totally gratified with the ending. I think it ending with that moment, I'm still totally gratified with the ending. You know, I, I literally, I think any movie could end in-, in a satisfying way and then have a coda where the devil explodes out of the floor, pulls everyone down to hell, and the house turns black, uh, and then the sun rises outside, and I would be like, great. I thought that was the best part
0: of the movie, personally. Like, yeah, we're talking about good moments. Like, come on,
2: that's it. Is a movie. really strong yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, on the subject, Craig of him like wanting this ending. I was saying to to Jim, like maybe he was like trolling. Maybe it's like uh, you want an ending. Here's a fucking ending, sort of a situation. Um, yeah, the
2: studio's like you have to tie these threads together, and he's like, okay, <laughs> asshole. It's a
1: weird movie in his career because I don't think of him as being an images director. I think of him as being like a sequence director and an idea director. He's not like the best stylist. He doesn't have like the best compositions. But there's some great compositions in this, especially for a movie weirdly a good compositions. high budget from a, you know, pretty inexperienced director. Although he does that same thing where the spider web slowly comes into focus. Yeah, he like loves Three that. times. He loves that. The first that. time I was like, whoa, cool. The second time I was like, all right. And the third time I was like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Because he was really, there's like trying to tie the spider in with the incubus. She like has a dream about a spider man, not a spider man, but a spider man, which again, like none of that matters, they but he sure does it. though. <laughs> no, they, they do drop a tarantula into Sharon Stone's mouth, which is something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, crazy
2: scene. Uh, yeah. Worse than the
1: snake, as far as I'm concerned. Worse
2: than the snake. Yeah. The, the snake is funny. I think a lot of, I think a lot of what's happening in this movie is a little bit, underwhelming right like people fill spaces up with chickens a couple of times uh, the, this black glove murderer breaks into their house and just puts a snake in her bathtub uh, there there are a few moments where like a, a dangerous thing is happening but it's just they feel like low-level pranks um, which is interesting I think I don't know I enjoyed it I was charmed by how kind of doofy a lot of the elements were
0: a lot of this stuff kind of predicts where he's going and I feel like his movies as a whole kind of predict what's coming and call back to each other. like Jim, especially as a filmmaker, like, what do you make of reusing bits like that?
2: Oh, I think it's great. I think he he's like developing a playbook, right? He's got. He's got a sketchbook and he's he's pulling out. He's like, oh, I'm going to redo that, but I'm going to do it even better this time. I think uh, I think it's charming. I think it's also fun to, you know, watch Scream as as, uh, Ben, as you said, and and see Rose McGowan get stuck in the garage door and be like, oh, I I see the lineage of that. Right. I've watched you. It's it sort of makes me feel closer to him as a human being uh, than if it was just rando stuff.
1: So I was like, obviously like mostly joking earlier when I compared him <laughs> to Paul Schrader, but it's actually interesting that you bring up the subject of using the same images and mm. the same ideas again and again because, as, as you both I'm sure know, Paul Schrader has recreated Robert Bresson's pickpocket <laughs> like seven times. I love when directors do that. I love when you can see the lineage. I love when they do exactly the same thing. Now, I don't love yeah. it when it's in the same movie, like the, the spiderweb thing, but I found it pretty thrilling to watch like all of Wes Craven's movies in in short succession and see yeah the callbacks and stuff and see the the yeah. themes. I mean it's it's what autourism is all about. And if you're not an auturist, hey man, I don't know, I don't think you like movies. <laughs> <laughs> or you don't like them the right way.
2: <laughs> That's funny. I don't I don't believe in autourism. I'm vehemently against the idea. Ben and I are about to go fight in the parking lot. I mean,
0: there'll be a lot of <laughs> fist pumping, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys just be better friends by the
2: end <laughs> we're about to go bro down in the parking lot hold on
0: so i will say i didn't fully pay attention the first time i watched this movie because I it requires a lot of attention yes jim i honestly did not see you picking this one um a lot of the characters look the same especially with the
2: blonde sure. women and sure yeah, there's a lot of blonde women and the guys the in whole the Amish garb yeah. People, yeah yeah they're all wearing identical Barry, outfits yeah. the only one who looks different is michael Berryman and he's murdered 25 minutes yeah, into yeah, the movie right yeah.
0: but jim we have kind of heard why you like this movie but to close this out can we get your sales pitch on why people should
2: watch deadly blessing sure yeah um i think that as i said it's sort of it's it's the first major pivot point i think for Craven. it's it's between his like really grimy early stuff Or his comparative really, really grimy. He never got super grimy, but it's his grimiest stuff and his and his sort of big budget bangers. Uh, And it feels like his first swing at a big budget banger. And I think that it is uh, I think it's super fascinating if you're interested in Wes Craven to see this this sort of pivot point, this, this major motion in his career. Um, because for me, his shift from then making bangers to making even bigger bangers is less interesting than his shift from making the, the as filthy as he's willing to get into uh, into into the, the dream movies.
1: Yeah, I, um, I We talked about the the weird trajectory his career took where it goes from like high <laughs> to low. And I think in a career like that, a film like this, that's uh, a swing and like a foul ball. Uh, becomes more interesting because I don't know yeah. you can kind of see why he came in and out of fashion with a movie like this that yeah, one, absolutely. from minute to minute is is going in and out <laughs> of being good or even coherent yeah give it a watch it's his most carpenter-esque movie it's got a lot of like POV stalking um, it's a good looking movie um, dude we said this again while you were while you were gone Craig not to be such a dude about it but Sharon Stone in this movie I mean fa va boy, mamma mia <laughs> oh
2: I also I somehow totally forgot to mention that she's pregnant, the main woman. Presumably that's the blessing, is the baby that she's pregnant with. Well, their
1: house is called Our Blessing.
2: The house is also called Our Blessing.
1: Bless this mess. That yeah. <laughs> should have been a tagline.
2: Yeah. <laughs> if only he were more self-aware.
0: Alright, well, we'll wrap up Deadly Blessing there. We'll move on to another banger coming up after a quick break.
1: You know what his last wish was? TV set in his cell. Can you believe that? He must like it so, huh? All right, my son. It's time to. Get uh,
0: off! Get out of Stay away from the
2: box, Bob. Get up! Come on! Give it to me!
1: You got it, baby.
0: So, between Deadly Blessing and Shocker, Wes Craven made a movie that kind of changed the trajectory of his career. Bennett, do you want to give us a quick rundown of what happened between these two films?
1: Yeah. um, So, he makes a movie for uh, DC Comics, uh, an adaptation of the Swamp Thing Comics. It is another movie. That apparently had a lot of kind of studio interference it was a disappointment i believe financially and critically so it found him kind of down in uh, made for tv land once again Um, he directs a film called invitation to hell Um, a lot of fun highly recommended Uh, then uh, the hills have eyes 2 comes out uh, long shelved and then he makes uh, a nightmare on elm street Another movie, much like *Glass House* on the Left, that you can't know anything about Wes Craven and not know about, uh, kind of wildly innovative, uh, acclaimed horror movie, uh, becomes a franchise, much to Craven's chagrin.
2: Is that a joke, or was he really sad about that?
1: I think he's not. I think he's pretty annoyed about the franchise. That seems like and. his whole
2: mo is to try to make things that will make him passive income.
0: Well, but Jim, he sold the rights to the Freddy Krueger character, oh, so it blew up. That's why. And yeah, I mean, not to get too far ahead. So it's he like, didn't get his cut, is right? What and that's. I part of why new nightmare he came back on board because that was the only other one he directed of the series and new right. line cinema was like mm, we should probably take care of you now um so it took a while for him to really see anything outside of acclaim from the bad franchise but I didn't realize that. then something happens with uh shocker what what happens here bennett
1: (laughs) well he he directs a few more films because his career is so weird after nightmare on elm street he directs a another made-for-tv movie called chiller which is pretty bad Uh, i would say almost as bad as those of eyes part two uh it's only available in this like truly abysmal transfer uh you can watch on amazon um not not worth the effort he makes deadly friend he makes The serpent in the rainbow and then he makes shocker now in writing about shocker i read a an interview he did with film comment around the, uh, the time of the release, it was sort of mid-production. He mentions that he is like consciously trying to outdo the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. He wants to introduce a, a, a character that's not only capable of carrying his own franchise, but is going to be so good and so like outrageous that they're going to be forced to retire Freddy and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Now he didn't succeed. Uh, no one really remembers Shocker. No one really members, remembers Horace Pinker. And after Shocker, after the trio of, of studio films ending in Shocker, he goes back to directing for TV with uh, <laughs> a pretty underrated movie called Night Visions. So it's, it's kind of bitterly ironic that in like trying to force Freddy Krueger into retirement, he's forced into <laughs> a kind of retirement and then is ultimately forced to come back to not just that franchise, but then, you know, get involved in like another ongoing franchise. So there's a, there's a sort of a tail between his legs quality to uh, the post-Shocker part of Craven's career. But uh, as I mentioned up top, I think Shocker kind of blends the best elements of Craven's best films and is a truly shocking movie uh, <laughs> with some, it of, its, uh, some <laughs> of its visual uh, uh, visual choices and, and some of the, uh, the kind of narrative surprises.
0: So yeah, I mean, this movie literally opens with the bad guy Horace Pinker in his lair dan tv workshop um it's very reminiscent of freddy's workshop but he's yeah. working with just tons of tvs is it a little too similar to, for the build-up <laughs> is that part of the issue here for why it didn't take yeah. off as a franchise
1: i i mean i i just think people didn't know what to make of it i i think i think they were expecting something like nightmare on elm street and they sort of get that for the first like 25 minutes and then when it becomes less about dreams and more about TV, I think a lot of people probably changed the channel, hey. <laughs> so to speak. I think a lot of people might have hit mute uh, when it became more about uh, more about TV.
2: I mean, I do think I do think part of I think the reason that I came into this whole project thinking of West Craven as a as like a pretty slick, tight dude is because the things you think of are the hills have eyes, which is so simple. Uh, although more in concept than execution and Nightmare on Elm Street, which is which is a really simple premise, but one that allows for just absolute levels of insanity. Right. That's why it's so great. It's because you're just you're like, oh, you go into dreams and then Freddy Krueger's arms are 15 feet long. Uh, and and what a delight. Right. And this movie, I it, when you're watching it, you're like, he's definitely chomping at the bit to make a new Freddy Krueger. Which I didn't have the context for why he was doing that so much, but that absolutely makes sense. Um, but it, but Freddy Krueger is like he he murdered children, parents murdered him in a boiler, and then you know there's a little bit of a logical jump to now he can kill you in your dreams. Uh, but that's it, right? That's the full backstory, um, and that's all you need. The, the Horace Pinker backstory is 45 minutes long and and has eight steps in it, right? It's it's just way too convoluted to be. A tight little thing, uh, and that's that's I think probably w- w- its main the main reason that it. I mean that and the ending of the movie I think are probably the main two reasons that this didn't successfully transcend into a franchise.
0: Bennett, can you set up shocker for us? Tell us what's yeah. going on here before we get into the eight step program. <laughs> <laughs>
1: sure. Yeah. Um. So I'll just I'll note we 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 open like you mentioned in Horace Pinker's workshop and uh there's a lot of just like violence on the various tvs around his workshop um for the most part unrelated to him but uh, as the credits wind to a close we hear a news broadcast about a serial killer Uh, no one knows his name no one knows who he is but for nine months he's been eluding capture and keeping the people of this unnamed town that literally might as well be named Townsville yeah. uh, awake at night it's haunting their dreams much like Freddy Krueger
2: little rich suburban um, town
1: <laughs> Jonathan Parker again like might as well be named yeah. like first name last name might as well be named like create a player is a uh, <laughs> is a high school quarterback or a college quarterback receiver. Um, might as well go to state u yeah oh he is a receiver i got to <laughs> change that in my essay yeah he's a, he's a wide receiver for this college team and uh, his foster father is the cop. Uh, it's Michael Murphy, the guy who was uh, Tanner in uh, Tanner 88, is uh, the cop who's on the trail of this serial killer, and uh, he suffers an injury during practice, gets like knocked out cold after running into the goal post. Like an idiot. Um, he just yeah. does that. Can I pause you right there, Bennett? I have a question
0: about that scene because three times in a row, (laughs) in like less than two minutes, I mean, he runs into the goalpost. He gets sacked for looking at his girlfriend with the ball or something like that. Or not sacked. He gets tackled on the sideline yeah. and doesn't get the touchdown. And then he runs into the water cooler and just like, yeah. whoa, falls over. Yeah. He's presented it, as like the ultimate klutz. And then yes. for the rest of the movie, he's like just got balletic grace. And he's like uh-huh. jumping across alleyways. He jumps across a rooftop. Yeah. yeah. It's like, they what?
2: definitely set him up as a different character than he is. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: What's going on there?
1: Uh- just, I don't know. I, maybe it was. Uh, maybe it's the injury, like gave him superpower sort of thing. It does. I mean, give I think the that's ability. what they're doing. It but. Does. Yeah, it gives him the ability to see into like the future, sort of. Um,
2: no, the present.
1: <laughs> well, it seems like it's like a few minutes in the future almost because he, he manages that's to true. get there in time. Well, I guess that's intervenes. true. That's true. It, it seems like he can see like ten minutes into the future yeah. almost.
2: But also. Project himself because Horace Pinker interacts with him when he's there right. and like can see him and yeah. knows he's
1: there. Yeah, <laughs> um,
2: yeah, it's it's very. Also, hard to other people <laughs> can too. When Horace, when Horace is holding that lady at the top of the stairs, she also sees and oh, interacts right. with him. His mom, his mom responds. Yeah, so he's
1: like walking home to go back to his dorm room and recuperate, and suddenly he realizes that he's on the street that he grew up on, where his foster family still lives. I think this is really effective, and I think this is where like the like cardboard like cookie cutter nature of like both the settings and the characters really works in this movie's favor because like it felt like authentically like realizing you're dreaming to me when you realize you're in a familiar location that's just like a little bit off or just a little bit like nondescript because you don't actually remember it that well like we we sort of have that happen hmm why why are we on this street why is the the tv repair van outside He goes inside and happens upon Horace Pinker, has already murdered his foster brother and is about to murder his foster mother and sister. Uh, As he tries to intervene, he goes through Horace Pinker's body. Craven, uh, as as you sort of alluded to, Jim, has always been kind of a master of practical effects. And in this movie, he gets to do some pretty wild, um, Uh low-budget-looking-in-a-cool-way optical effects. Yeah, he jumps through Horace Pinker's body, wakes up, realizes that wasn't an ordinary dream, uh, he gets a call from his dad. His foster family has been murdered, so now they they know a little bit about the killer. And basically, he starts using this dream power to aid the investigation.
2: To, to his father's chagrin, his stepfather's chagrin. Yeah, hates it. Yeah. Uh, it is really like, like oh alone, I'm a cop. You're a kid." He's like, "But I can dream into the into his world." This movie
1: doles out exposition by way of like TV news anchors yeah. who give out the most
2: wildly but detailed it's reports. John Tesh specifically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they also like they ask like these insane like personal questions. Like they're interviewing Michael Murphy out front of like the house where his family's been murdered. They're, like they, they say something like, "Now that the killings have affected you personally, will you speed up in catching the killer? Yeah. <laughs> uh, will you finally get the lead out of your ass?" Like so uh, rude, so so good. And they're they're wildly detailed in reporting the detail uh, the, the investigation. They like give away that they're now using Jonathan's dreams to track Horace Finger. So Horace Finger figures out who he is. Murders his girlfriend, uh, so he goes back into a dream. Well, because they get close, uh, they
2: almost catch him. So in retaliation, yeah, he murders his girlfriend. Mur-
1: yeah, murders his girlfriend, um, and then he he goes into a dream again. This time, manages to stop Pinker. They have this awesome like chase and fight across two rooftops. So I, I mentioned before that Craven doesn't seem to be much of like a cinephile. Doesn't seem to have a lot of like cinematic inspirations. Maybe it's purely subconscious but he seems to take cues from silent cinema um particularly like buster keaton um a lot of like the stunts and like practical effects and like somewhat like physical comedy like even in something like scream there's never like a clean kill they are these right. the guy's always getting like chased around he's always getting like hitting the balls yeah or, like, kicked um, and
2: doing like a full cartwheel over somebody's leg or something they else. take
0: a beating in scream yeah
2: yeah, it, it seems it it seems like those are the things he's most interested in are are those sort of practical effects and those and those sort of wild uh, physical motions and stuff, which I, I think is great. I really appreciate that about him.
1: Yeah. So they have this like big fight which is amazing. Like every bit of like the roof is like getting involved in the fight. He almost like shoves <laughs> his face into like a fan. Pinker gets arrested, Pinker gets executed, but before he's executed, he does this like black magic ritual to summon like the spirit of television. Um, which gives him like the powers to like channel electricity. Very, very unusual sequence that's that, never.
2: That's the best part of the movie. <laughs> that is. <laughs> that's what I mentioned earlier. I think that's the best sequence out of any Wes Craven film I've seen is that moment. In specific, the moment where he's like, give me this power, and a pair of lips come out of the static on the TV and say, you got it and you then suck back into the TV. Oh, you, you got, got a, a baby, baby, right? <laughs> you it's got like, it, yeah. It's so brilliantly weird.
0: Yeah, and then he bites the prison guard's lip. Like, it just, that scene is so amazing. So gnarly.
2: This movie, like, it's
0: built to feel like it's going to be just like, you know, you got to catch the killer thing, and that's going to be the whole movie. They catch him pretty fast for this movie. I know yeah, it's... like half an the,
2: hour in. A quarter,
1: a yeah. third of the way through the movie, uh, yeah.
0: I will say it's overly long, but it takes a turn from there and that's where it gets interesting. I'll say.
1: Yeah. Uh, the movie basically becomes one long chase. Um, Pinker takes like forever to die. And then because of the nature of these like TV powers, he has, he can now possess people.
2: He can travel through sockets, and
1: he can take over people's body.
2: Is that it? But... That's it. Kind of. <laughs> and yeah. he, and he can appear as a staticky version of himself. That's yeah. like a, kind that's of a ghost. Kind of yeah, a ghost. Oh, PS. People. Also that girlfriend comes back as a ghost. His girlfriend like, you blew past a ghost, that naturally also, but it's an important plot point like a
1: staticky apparition yeah. and for some reason this necklace that he gave her can thwart pinker's powers and yeah. like, cause the static for a reason that to, like, is undefined bodies he's possessed <laughs> and whatever body he possesses still has his limp. oh and yeah. we find out he has that limp because he's jonathan's real father jonathan right. shot him when he was a kid um to try to stop him from killing his mother um so that's I think that's what you meant when you said that there's uh, a lot of different There's just too much to get through which
2: here. I'm not against right like my vo- my movie also has eight plots that are sort of tumbling across <laughs> each other this one the only reason I would say it's to the detriment is because he wanted it to become a, a pop banger right this is I was thinking in my head that like the scream movies are like pop songs and the movie I picked yeah. is like Alice Coltrane or something and this movie is like <laughs> trying give that much credit <laughs> <laughs> it's trying to well I have medium feeling I feel like she's also sort of like brilliant but messy um right. <laughs> <laughs> and this movie it's like in between somewhere right it's like he's trying to come up with that like tight pop banger but he is not he's yeah. like you have to you need 45 minutes of explanation for things that aren't, like, the kid doesn't have to be a psychic. The girlfriend doesn't have to come back as a ghost. The necklace doesn't have doesn't to figure have into it. doesn't have to be it. his
1: son. Pinker, yeah, yeah, none of that
2: had to, he could, if it was one minute in, if it was child's play, right? If it was one minute in and the guy was like, I, I'm doing a voodoo ritual to become one with the TV and then the rest of the movie happened from there on out, maybe it could have been a, a banger that people would have jumped on board with. Um, but because he was I like... I think it is a banger. he Well... <laughs> I'm saying like one that resonated with the pop world, right? Yeah, in, in the popular imagination, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Banger, yeah. Um, I it's like a it's like a needlessly convoluted metal concept album. I think it's like a.
2: I wish it was more metal. I was a little bummed by how unmetal it was. I felt like I wish there was there, more music. Yeah, yeah. There are like four really solid moments um, where you're listening to a metal song. But even in those moments, I was like, the things I'm watching aren't as metal as the things I'm hearing. And the rest of the movie, I just, I just didn't feel like it was. I wanted it to be like Trick or Treat. Do you know that movie? Uh, not with an R, but with an or. I, it's I, an I 80s only movie. Know the it's, PR. I, yeah. I just wanted it to be. I wanted it to be more metal, and it just it never got there for me. I don't think Wes Craven listened to metal.
1: Yeah, no, I. I <laughs> That was fully an affectation, <laughs> but yes. I think the one time it really works is when they're saying it's the electric chair. Yeah, absolutely. Of that song. Yeah, of course.
0: Metal used poorly is the funniest thing in the world because it's so distracting if it's not actually used well. Because like it just stands out like a sore thumb. It's like you couldn't think of anything else other than just like screaming with like 260 beats per minute. Like, come on, like you can do better. Than that.
2: Well, it's also every time he uses it, I think all the times I noticed it, it's done. It's not like soundtrack it's like it is the entire soundtrack right it's like all you're hearing it's not like in the background somewhere it's like we're listening to two minutes of Megadeth covering Alice Cooper and we're watching some stuff happen yeah Um, it's not like just sort of dinkling along somewhere he's like or like we're preluding to them climbing that tv tower in a chase scene that is not nearly as intense as the song we're listening to right Uh, (laughs) but we're just listening to that song
1: it's weird that like I don't know among his like his goals here was to like I don't know, undo this sort of like franchisification of Freddy Krueger. You know, it's everyone says it like Freddy Krueger went from being like scary to being like funny. You know, he becomes this sort of like wisecracking mascot. But like Horace Picker does a bit of that. He starts that. Um, He bites the guy's fingers off and says finger looking good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah.
2: But I would argue so does Freddy Krueger in the first in the first movie. Yeah,
1: I, I that's the thing is like I don't necessarily agree that Freddy Krueger's not cracking jokes in the yeah. original one. Like he's a little more menacing and he's, he goes by Fred instead of Freddy right. interestingly until the second <laughs> one. But yeah, no, I've never I've never quite agreed with that contention, but um I, I, I find it interesting that he yeah, he wanted to like
2: Baker makes like, a an bunch of really stupid jokes in this movie. But he yes. also is set up as just like truly like Fred Krueger murdered children. Horace Pinker is just the most vile. He's awful to everyone. A dead kid. Yes, true. Yeah, he kills. He kills entire. Oh, he kills two kids on screen, right? Yeah, he's he's like also just so vile to everyone all the time for no reason. Like Freddy Krueger. Krueger engages in discourse, right? (laughs) Horace Pinker is just mean to everybody constantly. Uh, It's it's crazy.
1: And it's so funny when when he possesses people and they become like that. Like, it's weird that, like, when he possesses people, they have his limp, but then, like, they also talk like him. So, like, of course, you know, it's used to great effect with the little girls. With the little girl on the tractor. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: I think Pinker's biggest weakness is that he's just not likable. Like, Freddy, like, for as scary as he is, like, he's just kind of cool, you know? Like, he just has that, like, God, I don't want this guy in my nightmares. But Pinker's just, like... Yeah, I've seen that guy
2: downtown before, you know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Freddy has a look, and
1: Horace Pinker just... Both the name He's just and a his guy. look is just like some guy you like work with. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, Fred Krueger is also just a name.
1: Well, I don't know. It's <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's, it's just regular enough. I don't know. Horace Pinker's yeah. trying too hard. It's like, yeah.
0: <laughs> so because it seems to be the theme of the episode, I'm going to bring Toby Hooper back here. One thing we've talked about in Life Force is how it just feels like there's so many different movies happening at once. Yeah. I mean, like I said, they catch Pinker really early and then there's that crazy plot pivot. There's the TV voodoo deity. It kind of feels like channel surfing at times. So what can you guys say about the pacing and structure of shocker?
1: It's, it's strange. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's like two films, maybe three films in one, but I don't know. I don't. I don't mind. I think once Horace Pinker gets killed, I think it hits kind of a wild pace. Like I said, it becomes like kind of like one long chase, and um, I think it it becomes a little less interesting when there's sequences of them like trying to solve the situation. Yeah, right. Like when he's like teaming up with his teammate, teaming up with his teammates. There's an interesting turn <laughs> phrase. When he's collaborating with his teammates Ooh. to uh, to take down Pinker, um, you know, it naturally becomes a little bit less interesting, but. Like a lot of the Craven movies, it is the sort of script that I could have seen Toby Hooper making like a meal out of. Yeah. But I do think it's, it's it's more satisfying for me than Deadly Blessing, despite the, them being like pretty similar movies in terms of like the amount of balls in the air. Um, <laughs> they are, you know, yeah. I think I think Craven's having a lot of fun and I think he gets to uh, play around with kind of all of the ideas that interested him, or many of the ideas that interested him. The sort of the generational trauma and stuff, the sort of like uh, the media stuff that he'd go into, explore in Scream. Um, it's it's kind of all here. I think it's it's it, I would never call it a subtle film. I don't think anybody would, but it's it's media exploration is kind of subtle, or at least like less annoying uh, than the, the the media exploration in Scream. Like in Scream, that sort of stuff is handled in dialogue. Yeah. And here, besides the news anchors, which I don't know is so they're mostly just top you a as lie. to become <laughs> kind of funny. It's mostly visual. Yeah, there's that that we we put, in the credit when the credits end, we zoom out from a TV and then pan away from another TV as if we're so like TVs. Oftentimes, have this kind of they're like a visual motif throughout the film. Um, they they seem to like take us from place to place, and also there's always like some sort of horrible like tragedy on the TV in the background. It's always like. Like war footage or like the clan burning across.
2: Well, they're not like sitting you down and explaining a thing to you, the audience, right? They're just, it's like happening, and something else is also happening that you could look at if you want to.
0: Well, Bennett, you mentioned in your notes, like, even how they have the newscasters covering it. It's like, oh my God, this killer, he's like perfect killer like no one's gonna catch him he's so smart like do you even know
1: well, that's, that's what i thought was so funny that, that was like it totally made sense when i read that like crave quote about like wanting to make a make a character so good that Kr- freddie krueger has to retire because yeah the first newscast we hear they're literally like it's this laudatory coverage of the man they don't know as Horace Pinkerton. He's so he's so brilliant. He's broken into houses undetected. He's thwarted capture for nine months. Like he really does seem to predict the the the, the weird like fetishistic way people will talk about like serial killers and stuff now. Mm. Like that Ted Bundy documentary that came out a few years ago. I remember being like god like everyone they interviewed talks about ted bundy like he's like the fucking like friend they just met at school it's like and then he did this and then he did this and then he did this like i don't know. craven seems to predict like that I and mean, obviously some of that was going on already you know we had like the sort of like serial killer media sensations of like the 70s and 80s but i don't know like in the in, in the person of the the anchors in shocker he seems to predict like true crime like podcasting and the weird like breathless coverage of stuff like that
0: so Bennett, you sent over an article before we started where Craven mentions his beliefs about TV. Do you have that quote handy by any chance?
2: Yeah,
1: sure. It's uh, from a film comment piece called Professor Gore. Uh, he's talking about how the film needed an extra little twist. And he says...
2: He's wrong. Been a lot of... <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> a movie, if ever there was a movie that didn't need anything extra, it's shocker. Um the Trojans welcome the wooden horse into their city, reminds Craven. <laughs> television is the same. We welcome it into our house, not thinking about the threat it holds. On one level, Chakra is a horror film, but on another, it's something much more disturbing. Ooh. He really was, I think, like a Luddite. I think he really <laughs> thought television was evil.
0: Right, yeah.
1: And I'm inclined to agree. I mean, yeah, he's more not evil wrong. to me than prestige television. <laughs> it's, it's lowered all of our standards, it, uh, not just our standards for art, our standards for everything. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with Craven, and I think that's what I like. So I much. don't think he was talking
2: about prestige here. TV back. Well,
1: <laughs> I don't think yeah, such a thing didn't exist in 1989. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Again, Craven, a pretty prescient guy. I think um, a guy who, uh, even if he didn't always here, I'm going to mix metaphors terribly. Wow. Even if he didn't always hit it out of the park, he seems to have had his finger on the pulse.
2: Uh, hey. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I uh, I don't know I think he yeah I think he was pretty spot on in like talking about I don't know the, the sort of corrosive effect that television has um, I don't know like not to, it, obviously he couldn't have predicted Prestige TV he couldn't have predicted Game of Thrones but like I go on all the time about the corrosive effect I think Game of Thrones has on culture, and I think that's the sort of thing that Wes Craven was was on about. You know, it, it kind of like you don't think he's on about to, like
2: the, the news. It seems like he's on. A, he's like if if he's pre- predicting anything, it feels like he's predicting the twenty four hour news cycle. Yeah, yeah, he's probably more more, more <laughs>
1: thinking about that. But I don't know. For my purpose, I'm just basing like,
2: that on what's on the TVs in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just reading the text Bennett...
1: <laughs> yeah I, you're right i'm bringing a lot of myself no but i think that's why like of his films it's the one that like i i gravitate the most to just because like his kind of like alarmist like luddites attitude towards television sure. like rhymes with mine <laughs> I, I guess
0: so Bennett, it's clear you think this is one of his finest films maybe his best oh yeah number one jim i'm always curious about your ideas of how to improve movies what do you think would make this a stronger movie because i can kind of get the feeling that you don't think this is necessarily his strongest
2: i think i mean i have i have two minor qualms with it uh i'm sorry Bennett. well i mean one of them one of them is purely situational. one of them is that this feels yeah one of them is that this feels like it's of the same era as like uh as like a lawnmower man right it's like being alarmist about a thing that feels kind of quaint now which isn't a problem but it is it it flavors it when you watch it now in the future right um you watch it and it's he's afraid of like cathode ray tube televisions which feels a little weird um because they because they look so charming to me uh that's not a problem it's just a uh a, a bit uh, a thing but for me this movie is is sort of in in, in a couple of ways maximum craven it, it it hits those i think it does maybe the most with with his sort of visual um playfulness out of any of the movie's Uh, maybe one of the two nightmares he did is, is on the same level. Um, like maybe new nightmare, but I, I, I don't, I think he maybe does more in this movie than he does. He certainly does more with less in this film than he does in anything else, uh, visually. But, but in terms of, uh, an experience for me, this movie has long sequences where I'm just waiting to get to the next juicy part. Yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that tightening the script up on this would really help a lot. Like, I don't care at all about that main character, Kid. I don't care about his girlfriend. I kind of love that she comes back as a ghost inexplicably. I love that there's, again, it's it's three at least uh, separate unexplained phenomena, right? Like, the Kid yeah. becomes a psychic... The murderer becomes a TV demon a TV demon. And the girlfriend comes back as a ghost None of those is connected He doesn't at the end The devil doesn't pop out of the ground and be like It was all me um, There's nothing to tie them all together uh, They are completely separate And I think that's charming But I could spend a lot less time with that kid and his girlfriend And ultimately the kid and his stepfather At the end um, if we, honestly, if it was the kid and his coach for more of the movie, I would enjoy it. That coach is real fun. The
1: yeah. coach rules. He's yeah. yeah. I also love, and it's so weird that we don't get like any dialogue from him because he's featured so heavily in yeah. scenes is the, um, the manager. I, I think he's supposed to be the manager because he looks like sort of, nerdy. yeah, uh, uh, the rest uh Ted, of the Ted Ramey. Mm. We see him a lot. And then I don't think he ever gets any lines.
2: He has like one line. Yeah. He says, cause they say his name. He has a dumb name. Uh, <laughs> Scooter, <laughs> scooter, yeah, exactly, um, yeah, and, he, and it is. It's, it's Ted Ramey. It's Sam Ramey's brother, who's uh, who's a champion yeah he just he shows up like once and in one scene and then and yeah and then the whole football team is like trying to beat up a ghost and he's not there anymore or whatever or maybe he, he died a oh Rhino. He, he gets hanged in a closet right he, yeah
1: he does get killed which makes like, he, he, like you're like you're set it up a like, little like, bit. why wasn't he more of a character i mean it's because, like, because wes craven shot that back. part
2: and then the movie was four hours long and they had to <laughs> uh, <laughs> they had to cut it down they just cut down the wrong parts i do i think it could be tightened up a little bit this movie um yeah, I, I think i mean i disagree
1: but it's <laughs> It's the beauty of uh, the podcast Yeah, exactly.
0: Bennett wants the director's cut. <laughs> yeah, he wants more.
2: I need to watch three hours of this movie. If there was more and it made it it made it cruise better, I would watch it. I, there's another also wait here's a, a real specific critique there's this movie also has out of all the movies we watched I think the most disappointing single moment for me which is it's right after we've revealed that the necklace is the thing Horace Pinker's afraid of. He's inside the body of a, a construction worker. he's like just jumped into the first like threatening body that he's jumped into and he walks over and he's holding what is he holding, like a pickaxe. Yeah. he's holding some kind of manual labor tool. <laughs> Uh, and he lo- he's like, ooh, I'm going to hit you with it But then he scoops the necklace out of his hand with it And then he hurls it through the air towards a lake And it comes within, on screen An inch of hitting a bird out of the sky And it <laughs> doesn't hit the bird out of the sky If that, if that tool smashed that bird It would have been so easy to do I think it was happenstance that they got the shot with the bird in it But it would have been so easy for them to just Go in there with an optical thing Optical printer And take 20 minutes and make that bird explode into feathers uh, Instead of continue flying um it, and it would have been a genius moment uh but it doesn't happen and that was for me incredibly disappointing. Character.
1: what for, for the character it wouldn't have been out of character no for or right shocker you would have been out like oh of there.
2: course he's gonna just yeah. murder a bird for no reason he just to prove a point right
0: i gotta say in the lake my second favorite shot in the movie is when he's like i gotta go diving for this and he's his girlfriend appears and she's just like floating and then he's yeah. like no and swims away and then she's just like chasing behind him just like arms <laughs> just stretched
2: is just... so good it's so good. such
0: a weird motion that i couldn't put really crack up <laughs>
2: it's
1: it's weird how like sweet the stuff with him and his girlfriend is yeah. compared to like how like just like raw and like all the pinker stuff is every other word and nothing sound like such a like a I don't know like a pearl clutching prude. But like every other word out of pinker's mouth is fuck yeah come on
2: well for it's not manners. it's sometimes that's fun right but with pinker it just it feels unnecessary it, it feels
1: like he's trying too hard yeah like, it really does
2: feel like he was trying to out
1: freddy freddy he's yeah like, well you think you think freddy's profane yeah um but like i don't know, like the ending in particular with his girlfriend too is like very sweet like for whatever reason again this is never explained like yeah he can still talk to his girlfriend, like, well, she's a ghost. even though he's, like, killed the... Well, I, like, she seems to imply that, like, she's not going to appear to him anymore because, like, the TV demon has been defeated, but she's still going to be, like, a voice in his head.
2: But her appearance, the first time she comes back as a ghost is before there is a TV demon.
1: Does he? Does she appear yeah. to him before Pinker's dead? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Ooh, shit. <laughs> I, I don't know. To me, she seemed to imply... Like, to le- maybe, I'm, her... maybe
2: I'm misremembering. But I no, I, think I remember right. her popping up and being like, Oh weird, and then they catch Pinker. I
1: don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but to me she seemed to imply that like the nature of her like visitations were gonna change. She has to like reassure him that she's still gonna be around after he does some sort of like uh I don't know, Pinker destruction thing. Sure. Um, I mean they anyway. have
2: to be connected in some way because the necklace is like a magical trinket, I don't know.
1: Yeah, that the necklace is maybe one plot element too much.
2: It's I, pretty. It's pretty rough. It's also we see the neck. We see the whole trajectory of that necklace. He just gets her a necklace and gives it to her. It's a. It's like a fine. It's, never, you know, it's he not buy special. It for some
1: mysterious guy who's like, yeah, the necklace bears a terrible curse. Yeah, yeah,
2: no, nothing. He's just like, man, I got you a necklace, and then later it's like, ah, the, the necklace, and you're like, that necklace didn't mean anything just- to anybody
1: this is what this is is me being too charitable to the movie and like rewriting a version of the movie in my head where this stuff like makes sense and that's the better
2: version of the movie
1: well no there is no better version of this movie although (laughs) apparently he talked about like wanting to remake this
2: he should uh, have
1: like late in life he or somebody should have i would have loved to see him do another shocker
2: yeah or he could just he could have just made a sequel he could have just been like shocker 2 assholes that would be what it was called
1: i really yeah i I wish that had been the stipulation in his contract with miramax that he could make shocker 2 and not music from the heart
0: so that is kind of the big thing with this movie is that he wanted this so badly to be a franchise that he just like threw everything he had at it and it doesn't stick but then he has scream (laughs) later that became i mean arguably one of the three four most famous horror franchises in
2: history right here's the thing about scream i think is that scream is the point in his career where he stops writing his movies and scream that script is incredibly tight say what you will about it it is it is very much uh up its own ass uh but it's also it's i think the scream movies are more kevin williamson than they are Wes craven kevin williamson who wrote who wrote Scream 1 and 2 and 4, who also wrote The Faculty, un- unarguably the greatest Robert Rodriguez film. Yeah. Um, I Know What You Did Last Summer. And then in the middle of that, created Dawson's Creek, which is Scream Without Murders, right? It's, it's very Kevin Williamson. It's like definitely from that guy. Uh, and I think that that is why those movies, I think I give almost all of the credit. I think Wes Craven got those made. I think that they are in his interest range for sure. I see why he wanted to make them. But I don't think the thing that made those movies Katy Perry songs, uh, to continue my pop metaphor, <laughs> is, is Wes Craven.
1: I I mean, I, I, I talked about liking the third one in particular. I That's the, the one Kevin one Williamson didn't write. I need to watch yeah, that Yeah, I think one. that's where we I see it kind of, like, fan, meta interests. I think, I think I, it's better than New Nightmare, I, honestly. I, I, I bet you're right.
2: I bet you're right. I bet that's where Craven peeks through the most because that's the one that someone else wrote that he probably had more of a hand in it, right?
1: Oh, and Craven also wrote. Jim, you're not quite accurate. Uh, Craven wrote "My Soul to Take."
2: Right. He also wrote some other wrote stuff Cursed nobody talks too, maybe?
1: about.
2: No, Cursed, also written by Kevin Williamson. Really? Oh, Although yeah. that's, that's I,
1: studio interference. The movie.
2: Yeah, I read about that one a little bit because I was like, "This is this movie was eight times this long, uh, and they cut it all out." And and then I read, it, and there was a quote from Judy Greer that was like, "We shot four movies here." It has good bits. It, it has it great bits. That movie reeks
1: of yeah, just. Men's but such a because mess there's so much of it that's like pretty fun yeah.
0: and then it's bennett i have a counterpoint to scream 3 so brett and i watched scream 3 and we both thought it was fine but then we watched <laughs> new
2: counterpoint Night- done <laughs> asshole <laughs> shit you got
0: <laughs> but we watched new nightmare after scream 3 and seeing what he'd already done in new nightmare just knowing scream 3 came after it i thought kind of just essentially invalidated all of Scream Three because it just does it in a cheaper way where it's like we're on the set of a movie that we're making about a movie that's already been made that's in a movie franchise. You know, it's just, <laughs> it just it just seems like so much just beating you over the head with like this is meta, this is meta. <laughs> um,
1: I, I don't know. I, I I hear that and I raise you, uh, Parker Posey as well, she the great. actors playing Gale Weathers. I don't know. Like <laughs> she I, was I just great. I, I just think it's so much fun. He has like it's the also, perfect cast they're very it.
2: much of separate eras, right? Like, New Nightmare is being metatextual in a world where that's, like, a fairly fresh idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Scream 3 is being Scream 3 after the first two Scream movies. It's, it's, that Scream we, we should mention is, potatoes. like, yeah, of course, it's, Scream is that first... Or the third of his like major epoch shifts that Wes Craven is credited with, right? Right. Yeah, um, we forgot that part. <laughs> where, where, everyone's like ah, horror movies kind of flag in the late eighties into the early nineties, and then and then we're dying. And Scream comes along and is like, you can just make fun of horror movies in your horror movie, and then it's fun again. Um, and that's that's that it big. It Gives motion, birth right? to
1: uh, like a new boom for yeah. teens. So I think
2: Scream Three is is made in a different world than um, than New Nightmare.
1: To, to to its, its credit, class, I haven't too. I haven't
2: Thanks rewatched me. it in a long time, so I don't remember. I'm I'm not getting in on this fight between y'all I'm about which one's are better. Getting more pugnacious in my hope like <laughs> You guys have noticed. That's good. You're eventually you'll be an old man. We'll
0: settle this in the dungeon of the Split Tooth Compound later. <laughs> yeah. So I think my <laughs> final question is about Craven as a whole. What do you feel are his greatest strengths and his greatest weaknesses as a filmmaker?
2: I mean, I I. I feel like I've already said this, but I'll try to restate it in a more charming way. I think that he, I think, I think similar, we sort of touched on, I think we keep coming back to Toby Hooper because I think Craven and Toby Hooper have a similarity in that their strengths are in these sort of like juicy moments. But I think Toby Hoopers are all straight from his crotch. And I think Wes Cravens are all straight from his brain. I think he's he's like the intellectual counterpoint to Toby Hooper, right? He He's very smart at coming up with these conceits and playing out the conceits in a really gratifying way on screen. Um, And I really think that's where I think when his movies are, are solid hits, that's where it's coming from is this sort of, he's come up with a grimy. That's not grimy. He's come up with like a really sort of convoluted, complicated thing that he wants to make using an optical printer and, and a puppet. uh, And he's doing it, but it, but it, it feels like it's coming from a man with a degree in philosophy. Um, and i think that his i think that the worst i think the worst parts of his filmmaking are are sort of him working with actors it's 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 the parts where he's trying to string things together i do think it's interesting that he has a degree in literature also because i his scripts are not they don't hang together like film scripts right and i think that's the difference with the scream ones they're written by a dude who's like a consummate screenwriter and they're very sort of tightly put together um whereas a west craven script is a bunch of ideas that would probably fit in something shaped like and the length of a novel, uh, but that are not well-suited necessarily to making a tight uh, movie. So I think those parts, I think the the trying to make it hang together and the trying to get actors to do specific things are maybe where he is at his weakest.
1: Yeah, I would basically um, agree with what Jim said there. I think his strengths really lie in um, coming up with incredible sequences incredible effects i think he's really tapped into i think he gets what's scary i think hooper has the images that like upset me the most viscerally but i think craven is a close second i think a lot of the 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 dream stuff in his movies is is really tapped into um just i don't know. just the elemental things that sort of like turn your stomach and like creep you out. I think he's, yeah, very obviously coming to screenwriting from an intellectual perspective and not a storytelling perspective. And as much as I roll my eyes at directors being like, Oh, we're, we're storytellers deep down. You do sort of need a little bit of that sensibility generally. And I don't know how much Craven had it. So I, yeah, I, I think his weak points, are evident in, you know, the question of whether or not his scripts hang together and yeah. um, Asking actors to do a lot of like emotional heavy lifting. I think he was really, really good at casting. Yeah. Like he was really good at casting, especially later in his career for like the, the meta resonance of it all. Like I think Scream 2 has like the best cast ever assembled. uh jerry o'connell portia de rossi sarah michelle gellar just every fucking tv actor from like the 90s and 2000s is in that movie joshua jackson is in a single scene timothy oliphant is one (laughs) of the killers that's that's tv baby like he 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 had like i think in general like good instincts about like who to cast but uh yeah I, i don't think he ever really got great performances out of anybody other than like robert england and uh you know uh Matthew Lillard.
2: <laughs> and, and again, I would say those dudes both are coming in swinging, regardless of who the boss is, you know? yeah, they're
1: two guys who are pretty are probably never going to be uninteresting, yeah,
2: exactly, yeah.
0: all right, so let's wrap this up. Let's do our picks. Bennett, you have already said you think this let's is real, cr- wrap it
2: up, yeah <laughs> so Bennett, you've already that's a real wrap
0: <laughs> Bennett, you've mentioned you think this is Cravens Shocker is Craven's best film. Why do you think this is superior to Deadly Blessing?
2: Yeah. Bring it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, I I mean I I think it probably just comes down to like I crave and had an ad, some more at bats. I think he was a little bit surer of himself. I think he'd had time to sort of ruminate on some more ideas. So I mean these are definitely both, you know, everything but the kitchen sink, hey, what about the kitchen sink kind of movies? <laughs> And I just I think he was a little bit more confident, and I think the script is like a notch tighter for Shocker. Uh, I think it coheres a touch better. And then I I think that final sequence, which I realized we didn't mention, where they're jumping from like Mm -hmm. TV screen to TV screen, kind of like the ending of Sherlock Jr. Like I think that's just the most like thrilling thing he ever came up with. Um, Just such a wild sequence. Um, Because you know what the ending of Sherlock Jr. Was missing? It didn't have like a news anchor talking over it, (laughs) talking about (laughs) people are reporting, seeing (laughs) Horace Picker and Jonathan Parker. Uh, Like, like imagine having, yeah, like a, like a DJ talking over the ending of Sherlock junior, which apparently they, uh, apparently so in, in Uganda, I don't know if you're familiar with Wakali. this <laughs> oh, yeah. Going oh, yeah, oh yeah, of course. If you're familiar with Wakaliwood, like they apparently like will show screenings of movies with like oh, yeah. video DJs, and there are like VJ movies from like the silent era. Like there is like video jockeys over you know Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin. Like
0: that sounds amazing. This
1: is the closest <laughs> thing to that you're going to get in I think an American film is the ending of Shocker. You have basically a video jockey talking over, just
2: telling you what's uh, happening while it's a happening. riff yeah.
1: on Sherlock Junior, <laughs> and it's it's kind of incredible. Um, yeah, I, I think Wes Craven is probably the weakest of the four big masters we're covering with the, the split picks, but
2: still, that's still a good really, place really good. to be. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. A lot more, a lot more hits than he gets credit for. Yeah. Um, obviously the three big epochal movies deserve their reputations. But if you ask me, Serpent in the Rainbow is really great. Screams 3 yeah. is really great. Shocker is really great. Yeah. And stuff like Deadly Friend and Deadly Blessing are tons of fun. His TV movies are a lot of fun. He has very few complete duds. But, you know, he's he's weaker than, like, Hooper Romero Carpenter for me because I'll grant that he has, like, two complete duds.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Jim, what about you? Deadly Blessing versus Shocker. What are you taking?
2: I think I said this in bits across the episode. But for me, I, I do think Shocker has some stronger beats then deadly blessing. But for me deadly blessing is a fun ride the whole time and for me, and shocker feels it, it really there's there's parts of it where I'm kind of waiting it out. So if I was going to rewatch one right now, it would either be a supercut of the best moments of shocker or all of deadly blessing. That's a good answer. Do
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys have any final thoughts on West Craven before we go? Uh
2: watch the stuff you haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah. The big ones are all fun, but the the smaller ones are maybe funner. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, give the Nightmare sequels a try. I've only seen 2, 3, and New Nightmare. But oh, I've, I've seen all of them. They're of all them. good. Yeah,
2: People say they fall off at some point, but they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well,
0: Jim, Bennett, thank you guys so much for joining us. It's always a blast having you two aboard. Uh, Bennett, you're coming back next week. We're <laughs> wrapping up the series. We're looking at George A. Romero. You Split have... all-star. Yeah, we have... Already got an essay from you, one of the actually the, the second October horror essay we had on Splittooth Media. You want to tell us what you
2: picked
1: for George A. Romero? Yeah, I'll be talking about uh, his classic film, his masterpiece, Martin, which uh, Jim, you haven't seen. I've seen Martin. Oh, I see your email, but I seem to imply that you'd only seen. Oh,
2: no, I just dead couldn't dead remember what ones I'd seen. Got it, sorry. <laughs> I do, I know I've seen all the time of day of the deads, and I know I've seen <laughs> *Night Riders.
0: Knight Riders is my favorite.
2: Knight Riders is my favorite, I too. I love that one. Um, And I've seen Martin. I think I've seen maybe... I don't know. I think I've seen that uh, one. Did you just... 10,000 oh, yeah. Maniacs, is that him? No, that's... Um, the Crazies? The Crazies. 10,000 yes, yes. Maniacs is a band,
1: isn't
0: it? No, 2,000 <laughs> Maniacs is uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. 2,000 Maniacs. Thank you. Yeah, Herschel Gordon Lewis. I've seen a lot of that guy. Yeah. That's a great one. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. This is week three of our split picks looking at the American. It should be called Mount Rush Gore. I'm sticking to it.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's. I mean, it league. can
2: be. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't that your call? Just make it be that. Who cares? All right.
0: We'll be back. We got more great essays coming up. Thank you for listening. I'm Craig with me,
1: uh, Bennett Glaze.
2: And Bennett Glaze. <laughs> Excellent. All right. For Bennett Glaze, I'm Bennett <laughs>